Our first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 1, verses 1 to 5, and it's on page 661 of your Pew Bible. 661. Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come. Descendants of Jacob. So our second reading is from 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11 and 19 to 21. This is on page 1190 of the Pew Bible. 1190. So 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11 and 19 to 21. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We, have, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, 
though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Stand with me for the Gospel. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. And glory to God. This is page 961 in your pew Bibles. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you did not expect him. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise Praise to Christ the Word. Please be seated. Come on up, Jenny. In fact, Rebecca, can you come too? And Elliot, why aren't you in Sunday school? (laughs) Go. Rebecca, I was meant to ask you to do this tonight. I um, forgot. But I just wondered if you might like to just introduce us to Jenny um, (laughs) and uh, explain how she got here and why she's here. And if you could tell us your favorite memory or something of her, (laughs) if you can think of one. I haven't thought about this, so it's good. Um, so Jenny Dawkins, Reverend Jenny Dawkins, um, uh, is the associate vicar at All Saints Peckham in South East London, which was the church that I was going to before I came here. Um, and it's uh, an Anglican church, but in a community that's quite diverse, like gentrification, lots of kind of, um, but at the same time, lots of, um, council housing and need and um, and a, a, a whole range of people who are in the congregation um, and it was a really formative time for me as um, being part of that parish and Jenny was a big part of that um, so yeah Jenny's over in New Zealand for a sabbatical for a few weeks um, I'm not quite sure what I should say about that <laughs> um, taking some time in the lead up to Christmas um, to think about I guess yeah, to have some time coming out of a, a period of thinking about, you know, ideas of community living and growth at the church and interest in sort of social justice and um, saw what's going on in Wellington and was really enthused and encouraged by it. So it was really exciting to welcome her here. Um, and she has a real heart for, yeah, for the community, for living together well, for um, reaching out to the last, the lost and the least, as, as Bishop Justin would say. Um, and it's just a real, yeah, privilege to welcome her. So, sorry for the poor introduction, <laughs> but she's wonderful. And do talk to her after the service. <laughs> oh, thanks, Rebecca. Uh, it was a massive joy to us too in Peckham, and I'm, it's great that 
Rebecca's wearing a Peckham T-shirt this morning, uh, <laughs> to have uh, to have Rebecca with us for the couple of years that she was there. Um, and yeah, thanks for your welcome. It's really good to be here. Um, so as you've heard, I'm, I'm from the UK. And when I, uh, the current weather conditions, I checked this this morning, the current weather conditions in London are a temperature of seven degrees, uh, which feels like four degrees with the wind chill factor. Um, I checked the next 14 day forecast and over the next 14 days, 10 of them are forecast to have rain in them. Uh, when I left uh, London, the weather was such that you would, wouldn't think of going out the house without a coat. If you went on your bike, it would be madness to go without gloves. Uh, and the instinct to hibernate in that kind of weather is very strong. So you'll appreciate that when it came to me packing for spring, and even for the kind of summer weather that you guys have been having over the last couple of weeks, here on the other side of the world, packing for the spring and summer is an act of imagination and an act of faith. Could I picture what you even wear when there's sun in the sky? Could I trust that weather exists, which sends you outside rather than in? Did I trust the promise of the forecast? So as we begin Advent, the second letter of Peter and the prophet Isaiah and Matthew in his apocalyptic mode, all invite us to acts of imagination and acts of faith. They invite us to pack for the promise, not for our current experience, but for the hopeful promised future which has been revealed and kick-started in Jesus. This isn't about trust in the Met Office, who we judge to have made the right calculations, but trust in promises that are given by a God whose character we can already know through his past faithfulness. And it's trust that results in our responsive action, acts of faith, acts of imagination. So the second letter of Peter is going to be the text that St. Michael's dwells on throughout Advent. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to, to spend some time reading it, to read the whole thing, it's only three chapters, and to keep on reading it, because it's a text that really yields more with rereading. Um, the Bible Project, as ever, is a great place to look for a summary. They've got an eight-minute video about the letter of two Peter, so if you've got some time during the week... I'd encourage you to have a look at that for a bit of an, uh, an overview. But I'll give you a, um, a little bit of an overview now and keep your Bibles open at page um, 1190. So the letter of, of 2 Peter. Scholars differ, as they always do, um, about exactly who it is that's writing. Is this letter from the school or under the commissioning of Peter or is it from Peter's pen? Um, doesn't make it so much of a difference to us, I don't think, uh, as the wider context, the wider context I think is more significant. It's the second letter to the scattered, vulnerable churches of Asia Minor. And the writer senses that his ministry has not got long to run. He's reaching the end of his life and his life will not end, he senses, in a peaceful old age. But like so many of Jesus' followers in that season and like so many around the world today, it will end in martyrdom for the sake of King Jesus. Those of you that were here last week will have, been, will have heard, will have been reminded that the life of Jesus' followers comes to have a different status in the light of the resurrection. And Peter's, so as a result, Peter addresses that future, uh, the future of the end of his life, without much resentment, it seems to me, or, or very much fear. Instead, what he writes is with a sense of urgency to leave a legacy for this church, uh, the church that he has seen being born, he's been in, it'd been in its birth, and it's now growing and spreading far beyond the first eyewitness apostles. So at this time, this church 
were grappling with an unexpected and difficult chapter in God's big story of salvation. Resurrection has been pioneered by Christ, but the church found itself waiting to see that resurrection, that reconciliation, break out in fullness over the whole cosmos. This makes this a great text for Advent because we are in this season too, waiting for the resurrection and reconciliation which we see in Jesus to break out over the whole world. That's what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come. We'll see later in the letter more about how this wait is accounted for. And it's accounted for not by God's absence, but by his patience. Peter wants the legacy of this letter to that waiting church, including us, to be better equipped in the face of some false teaching, better equipped for this chapter in God's story. And I think the image that Peter gives us in verse 19 is uh, it's really worth hanging on to as our key kind of imaginative picture for this waiting season. It says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. It's not news to any of us that we are living in a dark place. There is darkness here. Just yesterday, I heard about a terrorist incident in, uh, in L- at London Bridge, a second in two years, um, which is not very far from, from where we are. Just one example of the kind of darkness that we do see. But what we've been given is a light, the prophetic message that Jesus has not abandoned us, but is coming again. And Peter's message is, pay attention to that. I've been staying for most of this last week at the Natiawa uh, River Monastery, which some of you may know, uh, and in their prayer hut, which isn't on mains electricity. So I've had to be a bit more attentive to light, to the light of candles and torches, and the kind of attention these lights need sometimes are practical. They need batteries, they need replenishment, they need attention so that they don't uh, catch light to the drapes or the curtains. Pay attention to the light to sustain it until the dawn comes. There's practicality involved in that. Many, many years ago, I volunteered on a project in Tanzania, and after the project was completed, seven of us climbed uh, Mount Meru, uh, a mountain mountain right there. Uh, We were accompanied by two guides, and we were the worst equipped climbing crew in history. We hadn't come to Tanzania equipped or ready for this, so we'd had to borrow most of, our, of what we had, and it, most of it was not quite right. There's a photograph of me on the top of the mountain wearing a, a sock on my hand because uh, we didn't have enough gloves. So between the nine of us, we had four head torches, and their batteries were running quite low. The last day of our climb started before dawn. It started at 3 a.m., So imagine the attention we paid to those four head torches as we scrambled up the slopes. Imagine how we paid attention as they started to fade and our focus turned to the light that was coming up on the horizon. Imagine how it felt when the dawn started to come. I've never seen a sunrise like it and a sunrise has rarely been more welcome. And this is is the prophetic promise that we have. The sun will rise. Head torches and candles will fade in comparison to the dawn that is coming. One day the whole of creation will be bathed in light, the light of Christ. 
But in the meantime, pay attention to the light, the prophecy that gives us a glimpse of the dawn to come. And I see in these first verses, we're mainly going to be in the first 11 verses, two elements of, of how we pay attention. The first is about grateful thanks for what we're given, grateful attention to the character of the God who gives. And again, imagine our gratitude for the head torches. And then secondly, sustaining and cultivating those gifts, keeping the batteries stocked up. So being thankful for what we have been given and then sustaining what we've been given. When I looked at the first four verses, I saw that this is the confidence that Peter wants to build in us. Peter is convinced that this season isn't for hibernation, but for fruitfulness. And so he gives us rich soil in which that fruitfulness is grown through just reminding us of how much we've been given. If you want to have a look back at it, through to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Verse four, through these he has given us his great and his very great and precious promises. God's very character is to give. It overflows from him, he can't do anything but, and this character is revealed in the prophets who we are encouraged to pay attention to. As we dwell with the character of God revealed by the prophets, so we're given confidence in the character of the God, the giver. Even our faith in him is his gift to us. He's given us everything we need for a godly life in this chapter of God's story, life in the light. He's given us everything we need. It can seem too good to be true sometimes. He's called us to a godly life, but how many of us, and I won't, I'm not going to ask for hands up, but how many of us ever find ourselves saying to ourselves, I don't have enough for this, I'm, I'm, uh, it's beyond me. I can't do it. I don't have what it takes to do the loving thing again. I don't have it, what it takes to persevere, to forgive, to be wise, to be faithful. I don't have what it takes to, to give what this situation needs. God's divine power, Peter says, has given us everything we need. So when we're praying, Lord, I don't have what it takes. We're asking for his divine power, his creation sustaining, raising of Jesus from the dead, boundary breaking power to be at work in our situations. I used the phrase earlier on, acts of imagination. And when I use that phrase, I'm not meaning acts of fiction. I'm not meaning making something up. I'm meaning cultivating in our minds, allowing our minds to be furnished and um, decorated and storied with uh, allowing our imaginations to be fed with this truth that God has given us everything we need. I mean, like me packing for the spring. Unlikely though it seemed in the current circumstances, I remembered, I brought to mind what, what the sun is like and I packed accordingly. So we can pray, help me God, I can't do it. And then call to mind what it would look like for his divine power to be at work when it's supplying everything we need for our lives and situations. Can I ask you to picture in your minds now something in your life in which you're beyond yourself, struggling to be wise, struggling to be generous, 
struggling to be godly. We all, there's, there's no shame in admitting that these are, these are things that all of us struggle with. Struggling to be loving, struggling to be forgiving. Maybe call, call that situation to mind. And now let's take a quiet moment to imagine what it would look like for God's divine power to have given you everything you need for that situation. What would it mean to know that you had everything you need for that situation? Would it cause you to act differently, to walk in the room differently, to engage in the conversation differently? For me to know that God has given everything I need when I remember it, when I recall it, when I entertain that truth in my imagination, gives me the ability to stand a bit taller, to enter a bit more confidently, to cross the room to somebody. So God has given us faith, and he's given us everything we need for a godly life, and he's given us promises through the prophets, the candle today as a glimpse of the dawn tomorrow. And I look to the prophet Isaiah here, and he is a prophet who will furnish our imagination really richly with the dawn to come. And what we read this morning is actually a really practical vision. The picture is of the whole earth going to God for practical, effective wisdom, wisdom that makes a difference uh, for, in unity and in peace. Swords are beaten into plowshares as a result of, of the picture that's, that's painted effective wisdom for ways of unity and ways of peace, and we see those ways born in Jesus. Back in the UK, we're, um, we're a pretty divided country at the moment. As I'm sure you'll be aware, Brexit has, uh, has pointed out divisions that are already there in the country, and I think it's caused more. There are divides even in families. People sometimes aren't speaking to each other because they voted different ways in the, in the referendum. We've got an election coming up. I don't know that that is gonna cause any more peace. How on earth can we be reconciled? How can reconciliation come in this, country, in this country? God has given us everything we need in his divine power for a godly life. The church can go to the house of the God of Jacob and be given practical and effective wisdom for peace. Jesus can give us today everything needed for life and godliness. And we can hold hope as a result that the, the church in, in the UK can hold that hope that reconciliation, that unity is possible. So part one of living in the light is paying attention in, in thankfulness for what we've been given, for all that we've been given, engaging our imaginations in that truth that we have been given these gifts. And then when gifts are given, what happens next? I don't know about around your Christmas trees, but around the Christmas tree uh, where I open my presents at home, the unspoken tradition is uh, that if you receive something that you can wear, you have to put it on right away. So if you get pajamas, on they go. If you get a hat and gloves, they, they get layered up as well. You get a rucksack, that goes on. So it ends up in some pretty interesting outfits. But it's, um, there's no greater compliment to the giver than the immediate use of a gift. We all know how it feels when the opposite happens and someone receives something and politely then tucks it away and you never see it again. So having received the gifts, we need to put them on in acts of faith. That, that's what brings fruitfulness and it brings fruitfulness even before the dawn. When we've sought God for his divine power, his equipping, we can put it to work. 
when we've gone to the mountain of God to seek his ways, we can walk in them. Peter writes, make every effort. Some translations say, strain every nerve. And it's using hard language because the way of Jesus is hard. Laying down self-interest, dying to ourselves and choosing love, even when hostility is what we get in return, that is hard. It takes straining every nerve. It takes effort because it's countercultural. It combats an alternative story which says that we're on our own, that we need to grab hold of everything we have, that we need to be defensive about what, what, what we hold to. So the way of Jesus is hard, but just imagine we have been given everything we need to make it possible. We've been given everything we need to add to our faith knowledge, uh, as Peter says in uh, verse 6. And when he talks about knowledge, I don't think he means academic study, but the kind of knowledge which comes through relationship. One rabbi said that you learn God not through your ears, but through your feet, where you go, who you choose to walk with. To add self-control, endurance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And when I think of Brexit Britain, it'll take all of that. It will take knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Choosing, I, I, I'm not preaching to you, UK audience, but I'm using the example because I think it's true for all of us. Choosing to turn our feet to get to know people who don't agree with us. Choosing to gain that kind of knowledge, to add that kind of knowledge to our faith. Choosing to be self-controlled and seeking God's power to be self-controlled in how we respond to difference. Reacting out of curiosity and hopefulness rather than defensiveness. Enduring. Enduring mistrust sometimes. Mistrust of our motives. Enduring that because God has given us strength for it. Mutuality, I think, can look like standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody and regarding the light rather than standing head to head to them in conflict. Mutual affection and love. It's possible because God's power has made it possible. I praise God when I see a journey like this ahead, when I see um, the, the struggle and the hope of it. I praise God for the bread and wine in which we're fed for this journey. To, to remember what has been dismembered, to participate in him. Because that is the purpose, as verse 4 said, in these gifts of God, participation in the divine nature. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote, if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless love and power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. I think C.S. Lewis spends that much time thinking about that participation in the nature because it is, it's mind-blowing to share in the very nature of God. It's an extraordinary promise. Receive it. Shall we receive it as a gift? To cultivate it in our hearts, in our, our minds, in our imaginations, and in our action, the truth that we are given the possibility of sharing in the divine nature. 
we're going to take that extraordinary promise. I always find it mind-blowing that, that is, that's the promise that we're given to um, discussion and prayer with our neighbours. Um, a few questions that you might want to linger over. And I, th- I always think the most important thing uh, with whenever we, we hear the word of God is to think, what does this look like this time tomorrow? How does this make a difference tomorrow? So... Um, If you talk about nothing else, maybe talk about this with your neighbour. This time tomorrow, what will you be doing and what would it look like for you to share in the the very nature of God this time tomorrow? What would that look like? And maybe, you know, maybe that might mean that you want to pray for each other in whatever you'll be doing. A couple of other questions you might want to dwell on. How do we strike the balance between making every effort and receiving the gracious gift of God? And what practices help us to sustain hope for ourselves and for our community in dark times. So if you want to pray, turn to your neighbours, have a chat, think about what this looks like for you. Um, And as I say, if that turns you to prayer for your neighbour, amen to that.